Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. Our latest bonus episode is a discussion of the Breaking Bad movie El Camino. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release, or in this case, a recent TV show. I'm Keith Phipps, here with Scott Tobias, Tasha Robinson, and Genevieve Paskey. This week, we're breaking format just a little bit for a kind of appendix to our last two outings. In our previous two episodes, we discussed The Dark Knight and Joker, two different takes on the classic Batman villain, The Joker. Going back a bit further, it's hard to imagine either film happening without the events that changed the comic book world in 1986. That year saw the publication of Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns, a Batman story set much later than usual in the superhero's life. It also took him to much grimmer, borderline apocalyptic places as he faced a Gotham overrun with a new breed of criminal and faced unsettled business with everyone from the Joker to Superman. That same year, DC Comics published Watchmen, written by Alan Moore with art by Dave Gibbons. Watchmen takes place in a world just off from the world we know, one in which costume vigilantes took to the streets in the 30s and 40s and advances in nuclear physics accidentally gave rise to a kind of Superman. But like the world we knew in the 80s, it was also one teetering on the brink of nuclear annihilation. Comics had long been taking on more mature stories when The Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen hit stands, but a major publisher using superheroes, whether Batman or the characters Moore and Gibbons devised for Watchmen, to tell a foregrown-up story attracted wider attention than, say, black-and-white indie titles like Love and Rockets or Cerebus. And in many ways, we're living in the world 1986 created, with superheroes serving as the dominant form of movie entertainment, and often on television as well. Which brings us to Watchmen, Damon Lindelof's continuation of Moore and Gibbons' graphic novel, though he prefers the term remix. Set in an alternate version of 2019, like the source material, it draws on the anxieties and political tensions of the present moment for a story set in a world almost like ours, albeit one with a history of costume adventurers and one in which Robert Redford is president and the world is still squicked out by the giant squid that killed millions when it fell on Manhattan. We're all quite taken with the series, so we decided to devote an episode to it. You can also think of it as a canonical version of the kind of bonus episodes we've been doing for our Patreon backers. We'll be right back after the break. There was a cavalry-involved shooting last night. You gonna give me the speech now? What speech? I should calm down and take a breath before we're at war again. No. There's a guy in my trunk. Delightful. Put him in the pod. You know why you're here? Some nun kicked in my door and put me in the trunk of our fucking car. What the hell? Hey! That is correct. I want my lawyer. Yeah, we don't have to do that with terrorists. Would they start this shit up again? Maybe there was something they didn't want found. They had a mission. It's only just begun. Okay, everyone. 
what were your thoughts when Watchmen was announced? I mean, I first thought it was going to be a mini a miniseries adaptation of the book, and then it wasn't. And here we have something quite different. Genevieve, what were your thoughts when you first heard about this? You know, it's hard to remember because I feel like it's been kind of bouncing around for a while now. But when I started paying attention is when I found out about Damon Lindelof's involvement, just based on his track record, the leftovers in particular, that sort of piqued my interest in terms of maybe taking a more interesting route with an adaptation than, than you might expect. And then once Regina King was announced uh, as as the lead, basically, but in a a new role, you know, I, I, I was never like gung-ho excited for this just because I did have that same sort of skepticism based on my memories of the movie and based on what I know about Moore's feelings about revisiting Watchmen in, in any capacity. But, you know, as more and more details came out about the people involved and Lindelof's approach to the material, I couldn't help getting curious. And uh, by the time, you know, screeners arrived in my inbox, I pounced on them, you know, with a little bit of trepidation. But after I watched the first episode, just couldn't wait to, to continue. Yeah, I'm probably um, right there with you on uh, how I was feeling about the show. Uh, the Leftovers really brought me quite a bit of confidence that he could do something with this and lost to as well. But what was interesting to me about The Leftovers is that the book it's based on, the Tom Parada book, is really a, it struck me even at the time, and I think I reviewed it for AV Club as an idea that was too big for its own author. You know, it was just, it was just like this really juicy premise that needed space or needed to be needed to be more ambitious than it was and so i don't know if lindelof felt that as well or something but it seemed that way watching the television show which kept expanding and expanding expanding and getting Mm -hmm. deeper and and uh you know more emotional as it went along you know so I, i guess my hope especially when i heard about the concept of this show was that lindelof would again be able to write around the material and do something and you know, do the world building that he does so well. Certainly these first couple of episodes uh, have filled me with confidence that he can do it. Dasha, what about you? You guys have so much more confidence in Lindelof than I do. Is this because of Lost? <laughs> uh, in part. I mean, I think that, uh, like, I was... Or is it because of Tomorrowland? <laughs> you you want to just keep, like, listing? <laughs> it it's, it's not a spotless track record. We should uh, acknowledge like that. How, do, does, does anybody want to cite World War Z? Does anybody want to cite Cowboys and Aliens? Ooh. I liked World War Z, okay. Yeah, World War Z is fine. Okay, anyway. so here's the thing. I really enjoyed watching Lost, mostly because I only watched it on DVD. Mm-hmm. So I was never part of the group of people who were waiting six months for the resolution to a cliffhanger that turned out to not be a particularly great resolution to a cliffhanger. I watched it in a way such that most of those cliffhangers were resolved immediately because I was just chain smoking my way through those discs. I really enjoyed the series a lot. There were so many and deeply frustrating things about it. The end of Star Trek Into Darkness, uh, mm. I think, is a tremendous cliche and and very disappointing. Prometheus, I thought, had a, a really good idea that went in a, went to just a really bad place. I think of Lindelof as somebody who can't ace the ending. And then Leftovers came along, and I thought, this is brilliant. Like, I'm enjoying the richness of the, the world and these characters so much. It's got to be Parada. It's, it's got to be, like, Parada's influence. Because especially with the first season, which is a fairly close adaptation yeah. and expansion of the book, so much of what's going on there is drawn directly from it. So the fact that the subsequent seasons were so great, I thought it's got to be Parada's influence, Parada's involvement. So I went into Watchmen 
deeply dubious and just assuming that it was going to be like more or less a, a retake. The early images with all of the Rorschachs just evoked so much for me. The idea of the the Joker army and the Batman army in Dark Knight Returns, like none of this seemed particularly promising. And it seemed like it was buying really heavily into kind of a, a V for Vendetta. Let's explore anonymous, but like through the Rorschach as a hero, like none of what it was doing uh, interested me and very little of Lindelof's past gave me any kind of faith that he could ace this. So, I mean, I think it's all the more remarkable that I love this show so much. But can we say though, that it is going to constantly be on the razor's edge of completely fucking up right i mean like oh, yeah. that, that that's the thing that's been striking me watching these episodes it's just there are so many ways it can go wrong at all times that it's like it's, it makes me nervous about the long-term health of the show for so, that reason two well, things um we should note early on that we're only talking about the first two episodes all of us but scott have seen more than that but we're not going to reference them except in the vaguest possible terms the other thing scott i want to know what's one instance you would point to as of it came really close to messing it up well i just or i could have teetered over it's playing with lit sticks of dynamite mm-hmm. here in terms of the subject matter and how it handles it. I mean, people have very strong feelings, as they should, about white supremacy and about policing and about vigilantism and about, you know, a legacy of racism in this country. I mean, like, this is hot stuff, you know, mm-hmm. and, it, and it's obviously referencing what's happening today. It's, he's making a, a watchman that is relevant to the issues of today, as the Gibbons and, and Moore uh, book was relevant to the issues of that day. So it's like, it's just... I don't know if I can cite any single moment, but I think it... I mean, I can, it, I can cite one. Go ahead. <laughs> In the first episode, you know, we, we open with that in, incredible uh, and very unusual Tulsa massacre sequence, which is a very audacious way to start the series and, and signals, you know, that it's going to be something different. And then from there, we jump into another black man being shot but he's a cop and shortly after that we see like an incredible incident of uh, police inflicting violence on someone you know a a police uh, officer of color so just in the first like half of that episode it becomes very clear that this is like not going to be taking a didactic approach to its its racial politics. You know, it's really muddying the waters and intentionally so. And when I realized that, I was like, oh, this is a show that people are not going to stop arguing about. And I think for the first time in a long time, that made me excited rather than absolutely dreading it. I'll put a completely different spin on the same idea. The sequence where Regina King is introducing herself on career day, uh, like in a classroom, and she cracks a bunch of eggs into a bowl and breaks a few of them. <laughs> and it forms into a smiley face with a bloody spot in the uh, the top of the left eyeball, which is a direct reference to the comedian's bloody badge, which is one of the iconic repeating images of Alan Moore's Watchmen comic. Mm-hmm. That moment is goofy. Like it's referential. It's a, an Easter egg, inside jokey. Uh, hey, guys, you totally recognize this image and knows, right. know what's going on kind of thing that doesn't have a ton of meaning in the moment. And it's just sort of it doesn't it doesn't read as particularly real. Uh, just the way she's mixing up the eggs doesn't seem like anything a baker would do. Yeah, it's entirely for uh, the brand of audience that's watching the MCU movies going. I I recognize this like obscure character 
obscure, this reference to an obscure thing. And in that moment, it stops being this drama about racism and uh, police abuse and the complicated mechanics of superhero stories as escapism versus superhero stories as stories about fascism. And it turns into just a goofy reference. Yeah, I mean, well, what it is, what it could be in that respect is Fargo. The TV show Fargo, which does exactly that, which is, to, which is absolutely loaded with Easter eggs and references to Coen Brothers movies, and and yet it's its own. Yeah, I didn't thing. catch that. I got I got to watch that show again. So you can pick up on those. Um, What's that? Oh, <laughs> the, all the, the references, all the references to the Coen Brothers and the yeah. TV show Fargo. <laughs> yes, there are a few. I mean, that's a different kind of trouble. I think it's a less controversial type of thing that's almost like well you're just doing a bad job this is kind of hackneyed in a way mm, i don't um, want to turn on i don't want to side drug. i don't want to turn on fargo though. i'm not i know i like fargo but i'm saying like in terms of like how things can go wrong sure. i'm talking much more about more of a socio-political front is mm-hmm. the thing that is where things could go a little uh, off the rails but as, as genevieve genevieve cited a really good example i think the, the show really upends your expectations and certain dynamics that you're familiar with are uh, racial dynamics are turned on, on their head and i mean you really that's a very very risky thing to do and i and uh again the show's sort of pulling it off so far yeah i i agree and i the politics of this are are, are slippery and kind of amorphous in some ways where you do get the futures liberals want in some ways where there's there have been reparations and then there's more awareness of the past and, and injustice but it has created its own discontents as well and while there's no way this this is a show that says white supremacists have a point, it's not saying that at all, but you can see where not it hasn't been necessarily perfectly executed, the plans of, of, of President Redford. It's created resentment in some pockets. Yeah, I mean, Nixonville in particular, right? Yeah, the Nixonville, which that's kind of a fascinating... Nixonville is a trailer park that mm-hmm. is that is extremely run down and also filled with you know the types of characters who would join the... Uh, white supremacist group. Uh, I've uh, embraced seven, Nixon seven as a, is a symbol of a of a better time past, and and you know a, you know a way to a, you know an embodiment of, the, of their grievances to what's sure. happened. But and, I mean, they're also you know they don't have a lot of money. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, and and in the and in the second episode, we see an absolutely brutal police raid of yeah. of, of Nixonville that we know from Angela's perspective because like no one else knows, but we know that she knows who actually killed the chief, and no one else does. It at this point does she though yeah she's she knows who's, who's confessed well, to it she has a better idea than anyone else yeah. does and and she has a better idea that anyone else does that this this raid is you know perhaps unfounded uh and certainly over the top and yet she takes her anger out you know very violently on on someone in that moment and yes there, this is like an enclave of white supremacy but we're also seeing just horrifying you know abuse of police power in this moment so it just again it completely sort of muddies the water muddles the the allegory that's happening here in a fascinating and kind of uncomfortable way i like king's performance in that a lot too because it's very much she very much conveys that that angela has seen this kind of nonsense before and doesn't want to see it again but you know if it's the way things have to go it's the way things have to go well and then the, the episode is so clever too in the way well first of all i mean i, I, I we were talking beforehand i'm sure about this and i guess we should talk about it on the actual podcast is that you know it was really funny to me to see a lot of the, like the immediate takes to the first episode of watchmen circulate on twitter and other places be utterly upended by at the second episode and one of them was was like one of them was a concern that regina king's character 
would not be in the tradition of other you know morally ambiguous heroes or anti-heroes or what have you from the graphic novel that we, we were just going to be rooting for her and and, right. and 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 here we get an episode in which she pounds the guy's face into the pavement over and over and over again and in the same episode we see on television this episode of american hero story uh, which is kind of a show within the show about the Minutemen, in which he smashes the face of somebody into the counter in exactly the same way, with the same level of anger and brutality. And then from we cut out of that scene to a monologue from Hooded Justice over a shot of her driving. You know, so it's all these connections are being made uh, cinematically that I think give her complexity and darkness and kind of and, and, and tie that character much closer to the tradition of, of the book than maybe people thought watching the first episode. I'm glad you brought up American Hero's story because I think that is one of my favorite touches. I, I, it's actually more, uh, it's more than a touch as, as the series goes on. I'll just say that that moment that you're talking about, Scott, will have interesting echoes in later episodes, um, in, particularly in my favorite episode of the season so far. But at this point in episode two, I think the American Hero story stuff is also just working kind of on a meta level within this adaptation of a comic book, a graphic novel, if, if you prefer. It's a television adaptation thereof. And it functions as a sort of consideration of what responsibility creators have to a source material. So having that in this series in particular, um, I think is a, a very interesting touch. Well, it also functions as sort of a, a side meta reference in that the whole convenience store robbery vigilanteism uh, episode is a pretty clear mockery of Zack Snyder's adaptation of Watchmen. Mm. It, it uses some of the same visual style. It, there's a... One of the things that people most objected to in Snyder's Watchmen was the scene in the alley with uh, Dan and Laurie fighting, which is presented as uh, a, like a pretty, you know, four color fist fight in the original comic, but turns into this like grotesque, like arm breaking testosterone rage spectacle in Snyder's film. And you have somebody you have hooded justice breaking somebody's arm pretty much in the exact same way with the exact same sound effect <laughs> in that before delivering a, a very over the top speech. You even have Zack Snyder's, you know, signature of what he calls retimings, where something uh, happens very fast and then very slow and then normal speed. I read that entire sequence as just a, a flat out mockery of the movie version of Watchmen. It, it didn't occur to me until you said it, but yeah, I think you're you're absolutely yeah. right. And that's the worst part of a, of a movie that's maybe a little better than its reputation. I also hadn't thought of that, Tasha, but I think you're spot on there. But the reference point I was seeing in it was American Crime Story, the Ryan Murphy uh, series, because in this world of Watchmen, like the Minutemen exist. You know, this is this is not a comic book adaptation. This is a historical, you know, ad adaptation. Yeah, and it's I think it serves a purpose in the world, too, where I feel like there's unlicensed vigilantes are outlawed. So I think it's kind of like, presents a ugly version of vigilante's past that's discouraging of people from pursuing it while also satisfying uh, TV audiences, you know, bloodlust and, and, you know, look for search for graphic violence 
and so on. But on top of everything else, it's also a Sunset Boulevard pastiche. Yeah. You know, about the whole idea of fishing <laughs> somebody. Yeah, it's everything all at once. Fishing somebody out of the water while his voiceover explains about his death. I mean, that's that's the beginning of mm-hmm. Sunset Boulevard, which of all of the levels that we're talking about is the one I have a, the hardest time sort of fitting in, like like figuring out where it fits into this this fairly rich tapestry of uh, of references and in-jokes. Mm. I'm not sure why that particular framing. Um, it made me laugh. There are little glimmers of, of humor in this show, which, I mean, thank God, <laughs> you know. Uh, I, I mean, as, as there were in, in the uh, comic as well, I, I, I suppose, you know, they're, they're small, but they're there, you know, and they're used judiciously and smartly. And a lot of the humor that we've seen so far, like uh, some of it in, in later episodes maybe gets a little darker, but a lot of the humor that we've seen here so far is kind of absurdist. You know, the very end of episode two with the the car whisking off into the night, like that's a comedy moment that's so unexpected. It's a very leftover smile he gives her, (laughs) you know, when he's lifted into the air. Like I told you I had people coming for me. (laughs) Yeah. And it's a very leftovers kind of trick to uh, the the metaphor gets mixed if I say it's uh, pulling the rug out from under her because it's really more (laughs) pulling the car up above her. But one thing that as as the series continues, this is something that the, the it keeps doing, that Lindelof keeps doing, is as soon as you think you know what this world is or what this story is, something really unlikely and almost absurdist will happen to kind of remind you that that is, uh, you don't know what the rules are here, that this is a different world than the one you're used to. And it's operating on on subtly different rules and something really strange will happen. And I'm not just talking about the squid rain, Hmm. although the squid rain is a really good example of, okay, we're in a seemingly predictable domestic moment you know with uh with kids fighting in school and uh a a dramatic moment between a mother and child kind of trying to like work out behavioral complex issues and then suddenly you're dealing with disappearing squid raining from the sky and you're Mm -hmm. just in a completely different setting my favorite touch there is when you realize that tulsa has its own like squid disposal trucks (laughs) like dedicated to cleaning up squid like it happens often enough that you need that you need that Oh, yeah. And when Regina King gets out of the car, she's got like a squid scraper, Mm -hmm. basically. Mm -hmm. It's just it's a horrible, bizarre thing to happen. And then everybody's sort of calm, complacent. This is a thing that happens kind of way of dealing with it makes it even more horrible and, and wonderful and strange and creative. And we haven't even talked uh, about Jeremy Irons. I, I was going to say, I mean, this has to be where we talk about whatever's going on with Jeremy Irons. I mean, at this point, at this point, I, I'm I'm guessing that you all have seen more of the show, and more has been revealed because by episode two, it's still some very strange and, and um, disturbing side business. It gets uh, more clear, but it does not get less weird. Yeah. Episode, oh, no, it gets way, way weirder. By episode two, <laughs> we haven't even officially know that who he is, although all the pr- promotional material has revealed that he's playing Adrian Veidt. Uh, some of the early stuff just said probably who you think he is, which yeah. I found hilarious. I, yeah. I actually spent a lot of time trying to fact check this semi-recently, and I, I don't think HBO or Lindelof ever actually confirmed Uh, that. I think it was basically fans put it together based on trailers and it was never they were never told otherwise where was he left um, after the book though he in the book he's and, and if you read a supplemental uh, material that was published of uh, HBO there's a little more detail no, there but I he's can't. he's uh, he's <laughs> on top of the world he's still has got his empire he, no one knows he's responsible for the squid attack and, and people would be upset if they knew about the squid attack 
uh, I think so. Thing, so. Yeah, well, after he completes his huge plan, the book is done with him. Uh, at that point, it's really more about how other people react to to what he did. It's it's. But his interest in science has continued on the show. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it really, it, it, this doesn't, this, you know, no spoilers, but it does, this doesn't really change. It, it does seem like this is a different show. Um, I mean, it's very much tonally in keeping with the rest of the show, and we know that he's connected to the rest of the universe. And in episode two, he does he stages the whole Doctor Manhattan origin story, but it's not clear how it's going to play into the the other narrative, the rest of the narrative of, of the show. Yeah, I mean, my my first two recaps of the show. I mean, uh, that all that stuff is in stray observations land, all the mm-hmm. iron stuff, because it's like I don't know. I mean, this is like it is a a weird little show outside of the flow of the rest of the thing. It doesn't. He's very fit good, in. though. I mean, it's it's, it's yeah, ideal Jeremy casting. Jeremy is having so much fun. <laughs> yeah, he is. It's it's whimsical. It's just a really disturbing form of whimsy. Yeah, I never understood the cake he's eating. It's a honeycomb cake. It's a cake made out of honeycomb. A uh, honeycomb. I've never. You know, he the first time we see him eat one of those cakes, he seems to take a bite and and strongly dislike it. Yeah, I, and I, I like I got the impression that they hadn't made it particularly well. We keep seeing those cakes subsequently, and my impression was like maybe it's not actually a cake. It looks like it's made out of clay. Yeah. But then eventually, I don't even know which episode this happens in. Eventually, we see him eating a slice of it, so it's presumably actually cake. Yeah. And we don't seem to see him eating anything else. Which no. Presumably, oh, the horseshoe. <laughs> yeah, we don't know what he has. Yeah, I can. Uh, one one spoiler. We don't know. We still don't know. <laughs> yeah, there's there's still a, uh, there's a lot of mystery. Yeah, a lot of unanswered questions and sub- that are not answered in subsequent episodes. I think the horseshoe. The horseshoe very much seems to imply that. I think it's meant to be an early clue that his servants are not exactly normal people, mm-hmm. and it <laughs> seems to be an indication that something has gone wrong with this particular individual because he seems to. Ha- he's got enough acumen to apparently make a watch uh, without having been requested to make a watch uh, in order to try to surprise and gratify his employer. But at the same time, he hands him a horseshoe instead of a fork. So I, I like I think very early on, you're just supposed to twig that there's something very unusual and bizarre. So I think we should pull back a little. You know, we talked about the politics of it a little bit. We talked about it being tied to contemporary concerns and anxieties. But what do you feel like the primary concerns of this show are what is this watchman interested in talking about the fact that it opens with the the 1921 tulsa massacre yeah. to me was jarring and unexpected but also two episodes in, you can already tell why it was appropriate i think as with much of lindelof's uh work uh trauma is a, a main concern here and in, in the case of this show how it echoes through history and shapes it and I think we can take that Tulsa massacre as being sort of the the formative trauma of this world, this alternate world that that they're in. And you know, without getting into spoilers, I think we're going to continue seeing that trauma uh, morph and uh, shift throughout history and kind of shape these these characters that we're only starting to get to know. Well, it's a continuum too. I mean, that's kind of the power of the. Second episode too, and the purpose of it is that is that you begin with this sequence. So you, you're whisked back to uh, World War One at the composition of this flyer. That's this propagandistic yeah. flyer that's that's directed toward African American soldiers in the field, and that that is a document that survives a hundred years and gets passed right. down from generation to generation. We think the important part of the document is what's written on it hastily during the massacre but it's really the actual piece of paper that's 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 important and, and resonant and still 
holds true in present day as it did in 1921. I feel like one of the big, big concerns of this show is elitism. And it takes on a lot of different forms. But but fundamentally, what he seems to be exploring is the break between people who think they don't have to follow the rules and people who have to follow the rules. And whether that comes in the form of the white people looking down on the black soldiers, you know, spitting on them while they're you know, fighting in this war for freedom, like looking at these documents that basically say, why are you serving people who abuse you? Like, why are you serving in a cause under like these elitist people who look down on you and and treat you badly? Or whether it takes the form of a bunch of vigilantes like uh, Sister Knight, who break the rules and, and viciously abuse people, uh, or whether it takes the form of Adrian Veidt living this bizarre life where he literally like the lives of the people who serve him mean nothing to him and he discards them with impunity. All of these things are, are different cases of somebody placing themselves above somebody else in a way that has painful and, and awful reper- repercussions that they have very little feeling for or response to. All of them are about people who are in situations where they can afford to or are being enabled to step outside the rules and do whatever they want. And I think in the same way, Alan Moore is kind of preoccupied with this idea of like what it means to be a costumed vigilante. The show here is expanding on that idea to just what it means to be somebody who's in a position to be above somebody else and enact violence, emotional, physical you know, traumatic, whatever it is on somebody else with impunity. I think you're definitely onto something there. And and I think as the show goes, has gone on, just the first two episodes where you see different perspectives of that, Scott, you talked about the second episode upending some of the preconceptions of, of the first episode. I mean, one of those things is like Angela remains the focal character and, and a character with a lot of depth. And I think, you know, we're invested in her. But you know, she's also has like sort of a, uh, a you know, Jack Bauer like approach to torture, you know, <laughs> and, and, you know, that's presented off screen and somewhat less horrifically in the first episode. But, you know, if you take any pleasure in watching the police abuse somebody like that, even someone who maybe, you know, is, has an awful ideology and has done awful things, uh, I think the second episode makes you kind of, you know, kind of rubs your face in that a little bit too. In, in terms of, of power too, I, I think that sort of parallax view inspired interrogation chamber pretty interesting device too because I th- one thing I think this show is concerned about is what are the limits of the state and what, what can the state um, you know where, what can they tell you not to do I mean you know even in things that perhaps people of a certain political persuasion would want to see happen like gun control can that be taken too far I mean very strict gun control results in in a cop's death in the, in the first episode here as well but you know I, I'm rambling a little bit but I think they're, they're kind of related I think that interrogation scene like what are they doing to that guy's head and is that kind of invasion in the service of preventing a crime, something that, you know, we we should be allowing. What kind of restrictions do we want for the greater good? At what point do we start tilting into a fairly totalitarian type environment? Well, I mean, I think it's just kind of the, uh, is it okay to punch a Nazi conversation writ large? Yeah. Well, and also kind of to go back to what I'm saying about the way that trauma echoes through history and, and generations, like as we see in the second episode, I mean, we see the white knight. We see what Angela and her fellow police see what was done to them at the at the hands of the Seventh Cavalry. And and it's horrific and it doesn't 
necessarily justify, <laughs> you know, uh, Angela and all the other police's kind of approach to uh, dealing with the 7th Cavalry now, but it certainly informs it. And so that hatred, whatever you want to call it, just keeps morphing and reflecting upon itself, uh, much like, you know, looking glasses mask throughout history. I think it also makes a connection to the Dark Knight and the idea of escalation, like the, the introduction of Batman leads to the introduction of the Joker. I think I think the mm-hmm. violence against cops, you know, leads to it just escalates a cycle of violence. Nothing nothing they can do really ends it. Before we move on from that interrogation chamber sequence, and we haven't really talked much about Looking Glass played by Tim Blake Nelson. He's awesome. Um, or, you know, mostly the lower half of his face <laughs> at, at this point. That, that voice um, goes a long way. Though. It really like... does. And that, and that scruff. But did anyone else? So the his his mask is very interesting. This this sort of reflective mask that we, without spoiling, learn more about in a later episode. Did anyone else like when we got a first glimpse? Because I think the first time we saw that in the trailer was in that interrogation scene sequence where it's reflecting all of the stuff happening around him. And I did think at, for, at first that this was a, a Rorschach mask update. Did anyone else have that feeling when oh, they absolutely. first saw it? Absolutely, particularly okay. in the in the pod, uh, just the way it's reflecting, and in the um, the still images from the episode that uh, HBO distributed, it absolutely looks like a Rorschach mask. And I'm sure that it's meant to evoke that. Uh, so is his his habit of eating with his mask on. It's it's very it's something Rorschach does a couple of times in the comic. Yeah, it's uh, we uh, over at the Verge the, we did a piece on uh, specifically how the Easter eggs in the show reflect how the show is different from the comic, how the show is uh, like stepping outside the comic, even though it's referencing the comic. And the, that one that one was the biggest one for me. It was It's just so obviously a reflection of Rorschach, like pulling his, his mask up and exposing that stubbly chin in order to eat cold beans in the grossest way possible. Uh, but on top of that, there's like that early moment in the hospital where he, he does have his mask pulled up and Judd says, pull your face down. And that's a very specific Rorschach thing, referring to his mask as mm-hmm. his face. I, I do think that in the early going, Looking Glass is supposed to pretty closely parallel Rorschach and remind us of Rorschach. And a part of that is just his coldness in those interrogations, I think, is meant to evoke like Rorschach's complete lack of pity for uh, anybody that he's identified as a criminal. But he also, episode two, there's that, that great moment, like, so why am I crying under here? You know, it just <laughs> like, makes you think of that new character in a whole new light. I think I think Nelson Nelson. You know, I was trying to describe uh, like I'm watching the show. It's like, wow, Don Johnson's kind of the best. Well, you know, uh, Regina King's kind of the best. You know, Templeton Nelson's kind of the best. You know, is there are, there's some very strong performances in this show. There really are. I again, we won't get into detailed spoilers, but eventually there is a later episode that revolves almost entirely around Looking Glass, and at that point, a character that I had kind of thought of as a series of Rorschach references and in jokes uh, and like an interesting but very small and quirky performance from Tim Blake Nelson blossoms into one of the most interesting characters in the show. Mm-hmm. And it gives mm-hmm. me hope that the episodes that we haven't seen yet are going to take the same kind of like 
like deeper look into individual characters, which is something that the leftovers did quite a lot. It's certainly something that Lost did hugely. So it's it's actually that particular episode is actually structured a lot like an episode of Lost with flashbacks informing the present. Uh, and I would I would be very interested in taking that kind of like deep dive into some of the other characters here. But what we find out about Looking Glass, about his how he operates today and where he came from in the past, just makes him such a more interesting character. He was already a pretty interesting character. Mm-hmm. Can I talk to, I mean, we haven't talked about the actual like aesthetics of the show, but they're super impressive. <laughs> it is a heady show, but when it has to deliver an exciting comic booky action sequence it does it with a tremendous amount of brio i mean the first episode at the ranch that whole shootout and the the yeah, the, the, the cows the, the crashing owl the ship. owl the owl ship which is all great to see again oh I mean, god like, yeah the disintegrating cow that she hides behind that's that's mm-hmm. slowly shot into wet mush it's a great i mean that, that's a really thrilling sequence and and uh and so the show has that power to really whisk you away its use of music is extraordinary i think that i really like the john uh, carpentery t- score and it's Trent Reznor, right? And yeah, and Alex Alex Ross. Ross. Yeah. 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 In the second episode, you get it may be Angela's theme. It's certainly playing whenever she's like, you know, questioning Will or kind of doing policey stuff. But there's a very like distinct theme music that is just so Reznor and, and Ross. <laughs> yeah, and also Eggman by the Beastie Boys is the closing <laughs> credits music yeah. in the second episode, which made me uh, uh, smile quite a bit. Um, and it also was clever. It was clever in the sense that, well, for one, it's referencing the eggs that were uh, used by uh, Lou Gossett in the episode. But it also is a song in which you think it's Superfly, uh, but it is the Beastie Boys. It's a it's a remix of its own. You know, it's a sample. So so it kind of feeds into the show itself. But I, I think it's a show that has to work and persuade just on a you know a visceral you know exciting well-crafted level and it does that too you know so it feels at this point anyway like a, a very fully realized vision we'll see what when and if it goes off the rails I, I haven't felt like this way since the handmaid's tale which, which i guess has gone off the rails rails but like the first because it was like you're really just going to make this an ongoing series uh you know that i recall liking the entire first season of the handmaid's tale while also feeling like this could and may well go wrong at some point um because it's just you're you're playing with fire i mean i'm five episodes in and it hasn't gone off the rails yet i think it's gotten better with every episode myself yeah which is uh, i mean again i I lost looms large over me but uh Mm -hmm. i like i love the end of the, the final episodes of the leftovers i think are so strong and so emotionally powerful i'm i'm hoping for something a little more that than lost but but this far into the series, it remains exciting. It remains surprising. It remains dedicated to being surprising. It remains dedicated to continuing to progressively open up the world. Now, Lindelof has said that he sees this as a, a one-off, that he, he sees this. Yeah, I, I, I question whether, I don't know, that might just be him being coy, you know? I don't, I don't know. Six episodes in, it doesn't feel like there's only three episodes left of story in this but maybe maybe there is who knows it's it's really i mean who knows maybe it ends with another giant squid being dropped on everything maybe but at the moment it feels like something like the leftovers where as scott said it's just getting bigger with every with every new revelation with every new installment it feels like this is something that could go on for three or four seasons before you even have to worry about repetition yeah getting back to style though i i I feel like a lot of times it's evocative of the comic 
in style more than in narrative in many ways. I think it's trying to tell different sorts of stories, but you get these frames that if you freeze frame them, they, they kind of look like a Dave Gibbons panel where there's so much detail packed into it, like in the classroom where if you look in the background, there's the you know four important presidents poster, there's the uh, anatomy of a squid poster, there's just stuff to look at uh, in every mm-hmm. frame. And a lot of graphic matches, the edit, you know, they cut from one image to another that echoes it or, or character in the same position within the frame. Uh, that's thing that Moore did a lot and you get that quite a bit as well and also the, the episode titles episode, uh-huh. yeah episode titles yeah and now we're getting sort of the back matters is turning up as PDFs <laughs> on the HBO site uh, which is quite interesting as well uh, but as, as Scott also referenced the narration of one scene overlaying the action of another and and providing some kind of counterpoint or comment on it. Uh, Those are all, you know, those are all the things that people, someone who's read the, uh, the comic over and over uh, has found ways to bring that into the world of the show. And I I think it works quite well. So obviously there's a lot to talk about with this show and it's a story in progress. So we're, we're kind of in finding ways to, you know, we're running out of things that we can say about it definitively. I think we've enjoyed talking about it. We might end up not to, not to tease our non Patreon subscribers, but we might end up doing a wrap up episode as a Patreon bonus episode. And also if you've enjoyed this discussion, you know, the four of us are either editing pieces about this or writing pieces about this. Tasha has certainly commissioned stuff for the verge and we'll be doing stuff at Polygon when she moves over there. Um, uh, Genevieve is doing stuff for Vulture, including stuff by me. I'm doing a weekly questions column on this, and, and there's so many questions. I, I I don't know if you looked at my last piece I turned in, Genevieve, but I I, I, <laughs> I did. I, I sent a note and I said I started out wondering if this would be have enough to write about, and, and at the end, it's like it was like 2,800 words. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I also oh wrote God. about uh, some stuff for uh, on Polygon. I wrote about the original graphic novel as an 80s artifact, and I did a couple, uh, one other piece for for Vulture, uh, kind of a kind of a what you need to know about the the, the book kind of piece and scott you are yes. writing about it as well for the new york uh times New York Times. that's one of your better that's one of your better papers right I, I, <laughs> unless not if you're you know the trump administration i guess but but i think it's well respected yeah all right well i've heard about it um all right well we'll be right back after the break to go over some feedback Now it's time for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film that they find interesting. And because of this three-part episode, we're already getting the Dark Knight and Joker feedback. Let's dig in. Genevieve, want to start off? Sure. Dane writes, your pairing of the Dark Knight and Joker reminded me of a tweet of Scott's a few days before Joker opened in theaters. Uh, Scott, would you like to read your tweet for us? (laughs) I guess I will. Uh, The tweet, my tweet uh, read, uh, the festival effect. It feels like Joker has already come and gone and been completely picked over, but it hasn't opened yet. Still, for it to play in theaters really seems like overkill at this point. All right, so Dane continues. The tweet brought into focus something I've been thinking about film criticism and discourse in general. It seems as someone who sees films only when they are released, that by the time I see anything, even the biggest films, which I often see opening weekend, the discourse among film critics has already moved on to the next big film in a kind of never-ending cycle. The festival effect makes this even worse. Joker was only a month, but some films will be months between when critics see a film and discuss it and when I can actually see the film. I'm finally seeing Parasite tomorrow, the first day it's open in my area, and it's already been discussed and picked apart for months on end. The Irishman doesn't open in theaters for nearly a month, and the same thing has already happened. I cannot help but wonder who the current model serves. I'm not a spoiler-phobe in general, but I do try not to read much about a film I know I'm going to see before I see it. 
meaning that I'm not clicking on any of these pieces about these films right now, but I will consume them all after I see the films. I understand that critics and outlets need to publish these pieces when they do. I cannot remember the critic who had a thread explaining why they needed to publish their Us ending explainer the day the film opened when people complained, basically stating that even delaying the publishing of the piece by a few days would mean thousands of fewer clicks, meaning less revenue. And if you take that far enough, eventually those outlets close like so many others have done so. And yet, does it really make sense that there is such a time delay between when film critics are discussing a film and when general audiences see it and can discuss it? General audiences? (laughs) (laughs) this is i mean this is a big bugaboo of mine because i honestly i have the same feeling uh for those of us that go to film festivals it feels like we can justify it up one side and down the other by saying we do better in seo we do better in google rankings we do better in getting ourselves into metacritic and rotten tomatoes and uh first reaction lineups and all of these things that boost our company's profiles if we put out reviews the second a film like joker premieres uh but i think the fundamental fact is we're all film fans first and foremost and when you see a movie that's provocative like parasite that's uh complicated and problematic like joker you come out of it wanting to talk about it and part of the way we do that is by writing about it and you know two months later when it finally comes out in some cases a year later when it finally comes out we can't ever have that experience of first watching the film again that experience of like walking out of a film kind of thunderstruck maybe maybe horrified and angry maybe delighted and and pleased but coming out of a film wanting to talk about it so i i honestly think that that drives the way these conversations happen as much as business concerns and I don't see that being a a problem with the solution. Now, it is possible from a business standpoint that we could all write our hot takes and then just bank them for, you know, two to 12 months, two years in the case of the current war. Uh, It Mm -hmm. just seems unlikely that that's going to happen. Keith, you were complaining about this recently. I I hate it. (laughs) And like, like as I'm out of the editing game at the moment, so I can just say I'm I'm a reformed editor or something like this. But I I hate that we're now living in a world where, you know, the studio sets the embargo, which can be like, you know, know, your embargo is for 3 a.m. Eastern time. There's more Uh, and more of that happening, and I don't understand it. And then like two weeks before a film comes out, all of a sudden, you know, all the reviews drop at that point. And then it feels like, you know, we all have our discussion before anyone can see it. And I don't think that's a, that is a healthy discussion at that point. I mean, the, the example I was pointing to was abominable, which, which, you know, why, <laughs> why were reviews of that running a week early? You know, it's just, it doesn't serve, it didn't serve anyone. That was a tiff. Yeah. Well, I guess so. But, but I just, I, I basically the internet was a mistake is what I'm saying. <laughs> but, but, but like, I, I do feel like a, a better situation would be one where reviews are just held until the day before opening and I know that's kind of a turn back the clock to pre-internet age but I, I do feel like readership was better served when the conversation around a movie happened when the movie became available for the public to see and you just you want every website to be the dissolve yeah I know but or RogerEber.com does that as well the dissolved it. we did that too I mean I, I, we I didn't can... do it at first we started playing that game when we started worrying about traffic because you know and that was silly because we destined to last forever <laughs> but, <laughs> well, the, the, but I, I have a very strong memory because we had to sort of manually 
bring certain elements of the site live at certain times because that wasn't that wasn't set up for us and so i remember staying up until like one in the morning to post a review of the entourage movie (laughs) (laughs) time Uh, well spent for everyone uh, yeah that was precious hours i I remember i remember the time that that the internet stayed up uh, uh waited for entourage reviews but um but it is i think dane is completely correct and um complaining about this and also completely correct in his analysis of why it yeah. why it occurs that's the other thing is is that like when i was at uprocks it was it was definitely when i really started to publish reviews as soon as the embargo broke because as mike ryan who, who was doing a lot of the reviews um said you know if you don't get that first wave you're not going to get any traffic from it and he wasn't wrong you publish reviews later and you may as well not publish them at all and that's Ah, it's crappy. Yeah. <laughs> it is the way it is the nature of the internet, unfortunately. You know, you, you say that and that's the that's the received wisdom at this point, but I think it radically depends on the audience and I think it's also it's also changing depending on how people use the internet. At Polygon, I feel like maybe I shouldn't give this away because like maybe it's a an ex- an exciting trade secret, but Matt Patches, the editor over there that I'm gonna be working under when I move, uh, has said that he never wants to publish a review of a new Netflix movie before 7 p.m. on the night that it it releases. And so many people, like it's it's very clear sometimes when you have a uh, much anticipated Netflix series like Stranger Things, for instance, there are people who will stay up and when it drops at midnight will binge watch the entire thing and be like blearily discussing the end of the series by 10 a.m. the next morning. Uh, but according to him, uh, search traffic for new movies on Netflix peaks Friday evening when people get home from work and are trying to figure out what to watch on Netflix. And he says that traffic for those reviews in particular uh, like is much much better at 7 p.m. on a Friday night. Now that is it goes so far against like our understanding, our industry understanding of how these things work uh, that it just it feels a little crazy. But it does make me wonder if people like Mike need to actually sit down and like look at the traffic patterns, or if it's that's just a difference between Polygon's audience and Uproxx, the difference between the New York Times audience and uh, you know people who are like having their entire discussion on Reddit because they watch the entire season of something that the second it dropped i think that there are a lot of different audiences out there and, and you need to know which one you're serving and in a lot of cases our conversation around these movies is serving film twitter is serving the people who all see the movies at at tiff or can or wherever and it's maybe something we need to rethink but it's also something that's just going to be tremendously hard to shift as long as everybody's doing it one way it's very hard to do it the other way totally I'm going to kind of gently push against Matt Patch's wisdom there as someone who, uh, you know, does publish things as soon as uh, series go live on on Netflix for traffic reasons and who watches traffic very closely. Although he is right that that it peaks around seven, but you're arguably you never want to leave traffic on the table. But this is not a discussion about SEO. This is a discussion about watching movies. And I just wanted to kind of put in my two cents as someone who has kind of swung to the other end of the the spectrum kind of wildly in, in, in recent months. For those of you who don't know, I moved from Chicago to Michigan, to suburban Michigan, where not only am I no longer able to see early screenings as I was in Chicago, sometimes I can't even see movies that are that are out in limited release, you know, for, for a month or so after. I'm going to Chicago this weekend to see Parasite so I can talk about it for our, for our next podcast. And if you notice that I'm not on the podcast as much often, often it's because I'm not able to see a movie in time to, to talk about it. So I 
increasingly feel this sense of being left out of the discussion on film Twitter, which I interact with less and less these days because of this. I think it's helped by the fact that I, for the most part, don't care about spoilers. I am fine reading about things before I see them. That's just kind of the nature of my job for so long. You know, I'm, I'm used to it. I, I like going into a movie with ideas that I can kind of watch play out. But what I do appreciate is when, you know, people talking about these films are like, do not read anything about this movie, which is what has happened a lot with Parasite, a movie that I have strenuously avoided reading anything about because I have been told explicitly not to do so. So in this context, I don't have a problem with witnessing the discussion of a movie I can't see yet, but I do greatly appreciate an awareness of how that discussion can affect someone's viewing experience and sort of being upfront about that, like like Parasite in this case. I guess the best solution I can think of is, you know, bookmark those, you know, save, save those articles for later because mm-hmm. there there's a lot of really good film writing that I think, I think you know, and ideally would appear a little later than it does. But, um, you know, we're all out there trying to make, make a good conversation. I'd say that it's just reviews primarily that get released. You know, they have that embargo. Yeah, and that's but when didn't you, hit, you feel like, like Joker was just t- chewed up and spit out, um, you know, weeks before? Yeah, maybe, the but that's a, there was, I think, just a lot of discussion sight unseen of that thing yeah, i think there was true. also a degree to which like there were people who walked out of that film tired of that film mm. you know there were there are aspects <laughs> of that film that are somewhat emotionally exhausting and i think people kind of came up predisposed to not want to have those conversations and therefore like you know after weeks of having those conversations anyway uh i think a certain class of people just kind of had a feeling of can we stop talking about this movie i heard so much anger at tiff over uh Joker winning the Golden Lion that I mean it was it was like people were were tired of the film before they had even seen it and when you go go into a movie with that attitude like of course you're going to feel that the discussion is over a week later uh, because you didn't want to have the discussion in the first place and that's that's something I just feel like I saw a lot of with Joker well we're gonna leave it there and perhaps revisit the Joker and Dark Knight in, in a future episode of feedback we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations if you feel so inclined we can feature your response on a future episode to reach us you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net That's it for this special one-off episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll return to our regular format. Tasha, would you want to tell us what we're doing next? Writer-director Bong Joon-ho had made movies before he broke big onto the international stage with 2006's creature feature The Host, which features a CGI monster created by American negligence running amok in South Korea. But The Host gave him a widespread reputation as both a smart stylist and a mildly deranged humorist who injected an off-kilter, enjoyably specific look at family into what could have otherwise been a standard monster movie. He takes a similarly colorful look at family in his terrific new film Parasite, about a family of impoverished schemers who trick their way into the confidences and then the household of some clueless rich folk. Where the host is more of a look at human connections and responsibility in the face of disaster, though, Parasite is about class differences and con artists, about entitlement and chicanery, and about some big reveals that make this story entirely unexpected. 
We'll get into both of these films in our next set of podcasts. Look for that next Tuesday, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Even better still, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Find us at nextpictureshow.net. Follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. And follow us on Twitter at, at nextpicturepod, so you always know when a new episode drops. Until then, we'll be dodging squid storms and reading only print publications to keep that Watchmen feeling going. Mm-hmm.